Amen. Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse um, 14. We're in the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus really uh, consists of a time period of about three and a half years. And in your mind, you could divide that three and a half years into three almost equal, though we don't know the exact division, uh, time periods or segments or, or ways that you could brand um, those, those times. The first segment, which would take about the first year, was the year of Jesus' obscurity, where his ministry was just beginning, where he was gaining steam, where the crowds were, were gathering and coming, and, and, and his name was being spread abroad throughout the region. Then the second period of Jesus' ministry would be known as the popular years. And that was the years up in the Galilee region where the multitudes of people were just coming from everywhere. And that day by day things were, were happening in such an incredible way uh, and his name and his message was just being spread and, and, and his roots being established and his purposes being served. But then the third segment uh, it was really what would be, we would call the, the years of opposition. And that's where the crowds are now beginning to thin out and the criticism is beginning to raise up. And it's the period where Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem and he's making his way south knowing that that period will ultimately culminate and end in the cross. And that's the period, that third period of opposition, where we find ourselves as we're in this section of Luke chapter 11, Jesus moving now south and uh, through the region. And it tells us as we pick up in verse 14, it says that he was casting out a devil or a demon, and it was dumb, or mute, in the modern translation. And it came to pass that when the devil was gone out, that the mute spake, and it says that the people wondered. But some of them said, he casts out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the demons, and others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. Now, this is nothing new that we've seen in the ministry of Jesus as him casting out demons in the various places uh, that he would go. But we see in this particular instance, he casts out a demon and there was a particular manifestation that took place that brought it a little bit further into the public eye or the viewing eye of those that were surrounding. A person went from not being able to speak to wherein now they can speak and so it elicited a response from all those that were around, gathered, and that saw this thing take place. It says that all of them wondered. And there was a certain number of those that wondered that were there that accepted the miracle of his hand based upon who he was, and they had absolutely no problem with who he said he was or his authority to do it. They were the acceptors. The second group of people that responded to this miracle, they would be the deniers. They didn't want to receive Jesus as the Christ or believe the testimony concerning who he was. But yet at the same time, there was a notable miracle that had just been performed at his hand. And so they find themselves up against a wall wherein they don't want to receive him for who he is, but they can't deny that he just did something that they cannot do. And so their response to that is that they deny it, justifying it, saying that he casts out demons through the prince of the demons. And then there was a third category of those that were observing this miracle, and those were those that were in the unsure or undecided category. And that they hadn't just received him and accepted his claims and who he was. And they didn't deny him and just say, no, it couldn't possibly be. But these were those that wanted further evidence. 
And so they come to Jesus after this miracle and they say, would you show us something else? Is there something that you could do further or beyond this that would validate your claims, that would help us to make our decision concerning who you are? And so Jesus, what he does now in response to this is that he begins to address the various uh, um, responses that were uh, restrictive in a sense. He talks to those that were claiming that he was doing it by the devil and he talks to those that sought after a sign. He begins with those that said that he does it through Beelzebub in verse 17. It says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, every kingdom that's divided against itself cannot stand or is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house Falleth. We understand that, that if a kingdom is given to civil war and that civil war um, brings a wedge between the people and polarizes them on one side or the other, that the strength of that kingdom is not elevated, but rather it's diminished. And then he says, if Satan, verse 18, also be divided against himself, how shall then his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And so Jesus' first response to those that make this audacious claim is that it is a very illogical claim. That no kingdom, including Satan's, can stand should it be divided against itself. It's just a very simple and logical response to the claim that they had made. Not only is it illogical, but their claim that he is doing this was also somewhat hypocritical. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 19. He says, And if I, by Beelzebub cast out devils, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, then no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Now, in that day, there were exorcism rites that had been passed on from the days of Solomon into the days wherein Jesus is walking here. And some of the Sons of the Pharisees, as Jesus calls them here, or those that were students of spiritual things, had adopted some of these rites and they were successful in some of the exorcisms that they were performing. They would call upon the name of Solomon in some instances or in the name of some other patriarch, the name of Abraham sometimes, or someone that had authority with God. And the way that they would do it, they were able in certain instances to cast out demons. We see this practiced in the book of Acts with the sons of Sceva that sought to call upon the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. Quite an entertaining passage of an unsuccessful attempt if you uh, read it. It's quite humorous, you know. But it was something that was done in those days. And Jesus acknowledges that they were successful uh, in doing that, that they were able to cast out demons uh, through those names. But what Jesus is saying to them essentially is that if you condone the practice of your sons that are doing it in a lesser name, then how is it that you will deny or call that I'm, call me out saying that it's of Satan if I'm doing it by a greater authority? Isn't that hypocritical? If you allow it in them, why would you condemn it in me? And so you guys are not only illogical in your charge that it's by Satan, but you're also hypocritical. Furthermore, he answers a question that they would no doubt have that they didn't ask at this time. They would always want to know by what name or by what authority do you do this to cast out these demons? And what Jesus says here is that he's doing it by the finger of God. That he's going over the head of every other authority that exists and every other way and method that they knew. 
and that he was doing it by the very hand of God himself. And so Jesus takes apart their argument, calling it illogical and hypocritical. But then he goes on and he explains a little bit about the spiritual realm and explains how it works. He says in verse 21, when a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted his defenses, and he divided or divides all of his spoil. So he uses something from real life that we would understand, and he then uses it in parable form to explain how it works in the spiritual realm. That if a strong man, someone who has authority over his domain, and he's guarded his palace and set up his armaments around it, he's kept in peace, all of his goods are secured, and there's nothing that can upset it until someone who's stronger, a stronger king with greater weapons or a larger army comes in, and he's able, because he's stronger, to subdue the defenses and the armaments of that first king, and then he's able to not only penetrate the palace, but he's able to take the spoils and divide them as he wills. And so in the parable, of course, Satan is the strong man, the first man in the picture. And the life of an unbeliever is the one whom he is seeking to invade or to possess or to keep in his possession, so to speak. And he puts his defenses there and he sets up everything he can to keep that soul or that person from in any way being taken from under his authority. What Jesus is claiming here is that there is a stronger than he. There's a progression. There's a delineation of power that's being established here. And what you see in this is that Satan is stronger than man. But Jesus is stronger than Satan. And so when the stronger than he comes and he breaks down the armor or the defenses that keep that soul in its clutches then that soul can be set free because God is, in fact, more powerful than Satan. He's the stronger than he, uh, and so he, he does this. Now, what Jesus goes on to say then in this is verse 23. He says, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. And here's what Jesus is essentially saying by tacking that on to the end of this explanation, is that there is, in fact, a kingdom of darkness And there is, in fact, a kingdom of light. Some people would like to think that there is no kingdom of darkness, that there is no devil, that there is no Satan, that that just is a figment of our imagination. It's a way that we explain evil, but it doesn't really exist. Well, Jesus believed absolutely that it exists. He calls Satan a king over a kingdom, back up in the verses, up at the top. And here, he then sets forth that there are two options. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's also a kingdom of light. And here's what you need to understand is that every soul that lives today and that has ever lived or ever will is a citizen of either one or the other. There is no neutral ground. That's exactly what Jesus means when he says that he that is not with me is against me and he that gathers not with me scatters. You cannot say, well, I have an allegiance in neither place. I am neither God's nor Satan's. I am an entity that exists unto myself. Not so. Everyone exists in either one or the other. And everyone is born by default into the kingdom of darkness because of original sin through Adam. The Apostle Paul explains it this way. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. 
He says, and you has he, that the he is Jesus, quickened or made alive, who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's another name that the Bible gives for Satan himself. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And now watch this, verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Do you hear what the Bible is saying there? Is that if you're not for Christ and you're not in Christ, then by default you are a citizen in the domain of Satan and that he has control and domain over your soul. And here's his will and his desire for you if you find yourself in that position tonight. Is that his desire is to kill, to steal, and destroy. And the armaments that he set up around your life are things that are set up to keep truth from getting in. And so he's been able to persuade you and convince you that there is no God and that there is no heaven, and that there is no hell, and that there is no right, and that there is no wrong, and that there is no argument that could prove the existence of a creator, or a deity, or a savior. And he's put those defenses up. But do you understand that the truth of God is a stronger weapon than the lies that he puts up around people? And so when Jesus comes into a life and he begins to convince that person of the reality of sin and righteousness and of judgment, And when Jesus convinces them that there is a God and that he is him and that the Bible is true, all of Satan's arms and defenses are systematically broken down. And Jesus then is able to come in and to save that life because he is the stronger than he. He's the one who's stronger than the devil. And then he can bring us then into the kingdom of light. But every one of us must make a choice whether we will serve the kingdom of darkness and its king whose desire is to kill, steal, and destroy or whether we will serve the king of kings whose desire is to give life and to give life uh, more abundantly. And that's always his desire. Satan's whole goal in all all of his kingdom and his realm is to take possession of a soul. That's what he wants to do, but he wants to do it in the shadows. He doesn't want to be known. He doesn't want to be seen. He never comes and introduces himself. He just wants to possess your soul and to keep you from the truth. That's what he wants. But Jesus can undo all of that. Um, So Jesus goes on and he explains further in verse 24. He says that when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking rest. Now, I want you to mark that and underline it and remember that from your Bibles. Is that unclean spirits or demon spirits that do exist within this world by the very testimony of Jesus himself, that what they are seeking is a body to possess. They're looking for a medium whereby they can express themselves within the world. And the desire of Satan and his minions is to get into the bodies of whoever he can. That's what he wants to do. Now understand this. He cannot do that at will. He cannot violate the free will of man. And so that's what he does in the life of an unbeliever is that he tries to wear down their defenses and move them to a place where they will open themselves up and allow those spirits to come inside. And he does that oftentimes through the use of occultic practices. 
It takes some time to get a person to come to that level. And so he'll deceive them by degrees and bring them to that place. But he cannot violate their free will. Uh, Just like God, the Lord, doesn't violate our free will. He waits for us to invite him inside. And that's what sets man apart from angels or anything else, is that we have uh, that choice whether or not we're going to allow things uh, into or out of our lives. And so um, it says that he goes through dry places and he is seeking rest. But then it says that finding none, he says, I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he comes, he finds it swept and garnished. It's clean. Then goeth he and he takes to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. You say, well, why in the world would I want a demon cast out of me if this is the end of that person? Understand this. Here's what Jesus is teaching is that for a person to be delivered of a demon or a demonic influence within their lives is not the end of the procedure. It's only half the battle. See, once a person is delivered from a demon, something has to replace the vacuum or void that that demon was extracted from. And that's the place of the Holy Spirit of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So when a person is delivered from a demon because they receive Christ into their life, That person has now been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They become a child of light. And the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so when a person receives Jesus Christ, it is absolutely impossible for that person to be possessed by Satan any longer because light and darkness cannot coexist in the same place at the same time. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The same word for sealed is used in Revelation chapter 20 where it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years and there's a seal set upon that chamber where he's bound and that he cannot cross it. You've been sealed with that same seal if you know Jesus Christ. So if demons are extracted or come out of our lives and Jesus comes in, it is no longer possible for Satan to possess that soul. We are secured. Now he can oppress that soul. And boy, does he ever seek to, doesn't he? He can talk real loud. He can shake his stick. He can threaten. But he cannot possess that life because it's been sealed by the Spirit of Christ. But the point that Jesus is making is that it is so important that if you are delivered of something, that that something is replaced by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within your life. And then it came to pass that as he spoke these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and she said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps or the breasts which you have sucked. But he said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Now, here comes a a, a woman. And isn't it interesting that way back, even in that day, there was a tendency within man to elevate the source from which Jesus came and to place his mother in in a blessed or an elevated position. Now, the Bible does say that she is blessed among women. And certainly that is absolutely true. She is an honored soul in the chronicles of eternity as we consider what God did with Mary. But it is also interesting to me that Jesus quickly responds to the words of this woman and he doesn't allow them to go unresponded to and he corrects it. And he says, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. 
And that's important for us to understand is that the word of Jesus and the person of Jesus always trumps and triumphs over any other spiritual person or authority or entity that exists. And that is where our attention always is to be. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he was given for us and given to us. We belong to him and our dealings are with him in terms of where we pray and where we worship. It's to Jesus. And so when the people were gathered thick together now, Jesus begins and he now responds to the second group of resistors. Remember the first group accused him of casting out Satan by Satan? The second group said, show us a sign. We're undecided and we want to see a little bit more. And Jesus responds to them now. And he says, this is an evil generation for they seek a sign and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. It's interesting to me that Jesus equates the seeking after a sign in order to make an evaluation of whether or not I want to live my life for Christ, he calls that evil. He says it's an evil generation that seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it. God's desire in our lives is not to relate to us externally. He's not a God who's somewhere far off in heaven and we're here on earth and we have this distant relationship where we send him emails and he responds and we have this external thing going back and forth between us. He's a God that wants to get into our lives and that he wants to know us from the inside. And so the relationship that we have from him or with him is always going to be something that happens internally, the knocking upon our heart, not upon our head or anything externally. And our relationship is internal that comes with him. The voice that we hear calling us to himself, it's not a voice that we respond to through signs and wonders. It's a conviction that happens deep within the heart that we recognize that there's got to be more in this life. Or there must be a solution for my sin because I know I'm not going to stand at the judgment underneath the weight of my own sins. And that's something that God does on the inside. And the place of signs and wonders is in God's sovereign hand as he would use those things through us to draw people to himself. But it is never right for you and I to seek after signs. The closing verses of Mark's gospel says that these signs will follow those that believe. But it does not say that believers should follow after these signs. It's always the other way around. And so they seek a sign. Jesus says it's evil and no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he explains. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the great fish, for three days and three nights. Jesus went on to say that in one of the other gospel accounts. And that's the sign that Jesus says will be given to this generation. And that Jonah was that sign. Now, that's interesting to me to consider that Jonah was the sign. Does that mean that Jonah actually died inside the whale? and was resurrected again, because that's the sign that Jesus is referring to, was the resurrection, that he would come back to life. I think that's entirely possible. I mean, if you think about it for just a moment, the men that were on the shores of Nineveh when the whale came and regurgitated this prophet, that now, I mean, what do you look like after you've been in the belly of a whale for three days? His skin was probably jaundiced, and every hair on his body was probably burned off because of the stomach acids. And here comes this man now, he's regurgitated and they're looking at this thing and they're standing over him. And by all intents, he's dead. They're looking at a dead guy who's just been spit up by a whale. And then his eyes open. And he looks and he goes, I knew it. 
You got 40 days. And if you don't repent, God's going to destroy this place. And they were like, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it. And they repented. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah because he was a sign unto them. Now, was it just what he looked like or that he rose from the dead? We don't know. But Jesus equates what happened with Jonah with what will happen to him. And he says, that's the sign that will be given to them. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and she will condemn them. The queen of Sheba. Because, says she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Then he gives a second example. The men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. And so what Jesus does here is he looks at the generation of those that are looking for a sign, that are essentially undecided, that haven't made up their minds and have said, well, we don't know if we want to put our faith and our trust in you. We don't want to receive you as our savior. We just feel kind of up against the wall that maybe we have to. And he says to them that there are two things that are a condemnation unto you. Number one is the queen of Sheba. He was this woman who was exceedingly rich. She was the queen over her whole entire domain. And she came because she heard about the wisdom of Solomon all the way up from the southern regions of Africa. She brought a great entourage and many gifts. And it says that she had to know, was there someone as wise as what she heard? And so she asked him and proved him with hard questions. And he answered all of her questions and gave to her all of her desire. And she says, the half of it wasn't told me of your glory and of your wisdom that God has given to you. And she glorified God that he had put such a wise man over his people to rule over them. She became a believer. The men of Nineveh also who repented at the preaching of Jonah, the simple message that carried with it no grace at all whatsoever. It was all full of hatred and judgment, but yet it was true. And they responded to that message and they gave their lives to Christ. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that the Queen of Sheba had eyes open enough that from thousands of miles away, she could come to a place where she would get the answers that she needed and her heart was soft enough that she would receive them. And here now, the light of the world, who's greater even than Solomon, whom your sons are using to, his name to cast out demons, and I've come to you and you've re refused to receive the testimony that I've brought. And therefore, the queen of Sheba will condemn you because she received the witness of Solomon and the greater than Solomon is right in your face. And the same thing holds true with the men of Nineveh who heard a message that had no grace at all in it. And now here the one who is full of grace and truth is right here in your midst. He's come to you and yet you won't repent. And so the men of that generation will rise up and they will condemn you for what it is. And essentially what Jesus is accusing them of here is that they are willingly closing their eyes and not receiving the testimony that's given right in front of them. And because they're closing their eyes and refusing to see it, he goes on now to say in verse 33, he says, no man, when he has lighted a candle or a lamp, more accurately an oil lamp, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. It doesn't make any sense to turn on a flashlight or light an oil lamp and then put it somewhere where it's not going to help you see what's going on in the room or in the environment that's around you. 
And then he says the light or the lamp of the body is the eye. That is what your eye is open and what it's upon. Therefore, if your eye is single or properly folded into what it's supposed to be looking at or what's actually going on in front of it, according to the light, then your whole body or your whole life is also going to be full of life, light. You're going to be able to see where you're going. But when your eye is evil, when your eye is looking at things darkened, when it's not allowing the light to shine, but it's choosing rather to look at things other than what the light is clearly exposing, then your body or your life is also full of darkness, obscurity. You won't see where you're going. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Be careful that your eyes are able to observe what's in front of you, both the light and the darkness, and that you discern what they are. If your whole body, therefore, shall be full of light, because your eyes are on the light, having no part dark, then the whole, and the idea is the whole life, shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle does give thee light. So now to untie all of the parabolic language that Jesus used, very simply, essentially, what he's saying is this, is that when there is a light in the room, if you set your eyes upon that light, then it's going to be very easy for you to see with perspective, what's going on around you and where you are in relation to what's going on around you. But if you refuse to look at that light and you hide it because you choose rather to abide in darkness, then not only are you going to not see where you are and what's going on around you, but you're going to abide in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world and he's manifested in their presence for them to see. And should they set their eyes upon him, then it would become very evident to them and clear who he is without needing a sign to prove it or without needing some wonder if they would just open their eyes and look and reason according to what God had set before them. But because they are closing their eyes and refusing to see the testimony of God, therefore they're abiding in their condemnation, in their sins, and their lives are going to be held in obscurity. Now for you and me, that has two references. Number one, for our salvation. Are you and I willing to look at the light that God has placed within the world? The Bible says that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Are you and I willing to look into the light and say, God, if you're real, would you show me who you are? Are we willing to look into the testimony of Scripture, into the Word of God, and honestly reflect upon our own lives and say, God, am I in you? Will I be willing to come to the light? And if we do, then we will find light and we'll find a way to eternal life through Jesus out of this world. But for those of us that are saved, this also bears reference to the walk that we have with Jesus. That if our eyes as believers are constantly upon him and we're looking to him as our light and our salvation, then our lives are constantly going to be shed forth with light. We're going to understand their environment, where we are, where we're going, why we're here. Things are going to make sense. There'll be a sense of peace that, okay, I'm in the right place. I'm on the right path because my eyes are upon him. But if I choose to take my eyes off of him and set them on circumstances or upon worldly things or upon dark things because I feel like being distant from God for a while, then the immediate result of that is that the path and the atmosphere around me are going to become obscured and I'm not going to be able to see clearly where I am or where I'm going and life is going to go from joyful to despairing. And so the call for you and I, if you're not saved, is get your eyes on Jesus and recognize what he's done for you and give your life to him so that you can see. 
And if you are saved here, keep your eyes on Jesus that your path and your footsteps may be laid out before thee. The Bible says that the entering in of thy word giveth light. The Bible says that God is light and he desires to give light to his people. And so Jesus condemns them because they are willingly blinded to the light. Well, now the, now the plot thickens. They were already kind of upset with him. And it says that as he spoke, it says a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And so he went in and he sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, I love this scene in my mind's eye because Jesus was very clearly, obviously a rabbi. He wore the clothing of a rabbi. He had the following of a rabbi. He did the deeds of a rabbi. He was a teacher and a healer. And now he enters into the house of essentially another rabbi. And they were very strict about their traditions in the way that they would do things. And so when they would sit down to eat, they would go through the ceremonial washing, which was extremely um, <laughs> crazy. I mean, they would have three different ways they did it. They would dribble water down their fingers, but not beyond their wrists. If it went down to their elbows, they had to start over because it you know, defiled their body. And I mean, it was just this insane thing that they all would do. Everyone would go through it every time. And Jesus walks in the house. He looks at the laver. He goes, eh. and he goes and he sits down at the table. He completely ignores it. Now understand this, that Jesus was absolutely dead serious about being obedient to every command and every ordinance of God. But Jesus also had absolutely no regard whatsoever for the traditions of men that were not part of God's ordinance or God's word. And so here he sits down and he doesn't wash and the Pharisee marvels. And so it says that the Lord said unto him, and you know, in other places he waits to read their thoughts or he waits for a response. Here he doesn't. He just goes right for the jugular. I want this, okay? I pray for this kind of strength and this kind of boldness. I don't have it, but I wish I did. It says that the Lord said unto him, now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools, did not he that made that which is without the outside make that which is within also? The first indictment that Jesus brings upon these Pharisees is that they were hypocrites. And the form of the hypocrisy is that everything on the exterior of their life looked pristine, clean, and perfect. But they had no regard at all for what was going on inside their lives. And Jesus says, underneath the surface that everyone sees, you guys are full of ravening and wickedness. Oh, but you justify it, verse 41. But rather, give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Well, I give, I tithe. And so therefore, it doesn't really matter what I do in my life. God doesn't care about my secret behaviors as long as I'm doing everything right on the outside and I'm giving my offering each week. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought you to have done, but not to have leave, left the other undone. Now, they were so crazy about the way that they would tithe and give is that when they'd harvest their garden, they would count out every 10 seeds. They would go nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. Their mint, their rue, their spices, all of those things. We tithe of everything that we've got. And all of the people would look on and say, my goodness, look how spiritual they are. They give of everything 
that they have. But yet they would negate and neglect at the same time all of the weightier things that were the more important things concerning the judgment of God and the love of God. And Jesus says you've got to do both. It's not enough to choose the things that you want to obey and then to disobey and everything else and to put forth this picture that you are righteous. He says, Woe unto you Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus says to them that you are more concerned with your positions in the eyes of men and what they see when they look at you and the greetings that you receive as rabbi, rabbi, than you are with my concern in making you leaders over my people. All you care about is yourselves. And the result of that, verse 44, he says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Now, in Israel, if a person walked over the grave of a dead person, they would be considered or rendered unclean. And they would have to go through a ceremonial process or wait a period of time before they could then uh, rejoin the assembly or sit down at a feast. Because to come in contact with the grave was a defiling thing. And what Jesus is saying, essentially is that you guys are walking sources of defilement. That everyone that comes in contact with you is defiled because of your hypocrisy. <clears throat> well, then answered one of the lawyers, this dinner's going really well thus far. <clears throat> and he said unto him, Master, thus saying, you reproachest us also. Well, they're offended. They go, maybe you should be careful with your words. You're painting with kind of a broad brush there. In fact, Jesus, you're kind of painting with a broom. And by saying these things, you're including us in this indictment as well. And certainly you must be in error. So Jesus says, oh, you guys. He said, woe unto you also, lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and you yourselves touch not one of the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, the lawyers were those that would write and, 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 and construct the Mishnah, the Talmud, all of those commentaries and uh, explanations of the various laws describing what what actually does constitute work on the Sabbath day. And they would kind of go through and, and define and describe everything that you could do. Isn't it interesting? If you get a lawyer involved in anything, what it does, I mean, it instantly complicates it to the point where it makes your head spin. I mean, if you if you were going to trade me a pen for a piece of gum and we were to get a lawyer involved in that, you can only imagine what that would entail, right? Well, party one is hitherto absolved from every responsibility should that pen someday stab him in the sternum because he drops it while he's walking. And should the gum get caught in party B's throat? I mean, you put a lawyer into something and all of a sudden, and that's exactly what the lawyers had done in, 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 uh, in the Jews' religion with all of the laws that God had placed. They had made them so complicated, they were impossible to the point where Jesus said, you have made them burdens that are grievous to be borne, so much so that you yourselves are not even willing to, to, to carry one of them with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, 
may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel, he was the first martyr that ever was in the, in the history of God, the brother of Cain who was killed because of his testimony in offering a lamb, picturing Jesus. Unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple, he was the last recorded martyr in the Old Testament history. And his story is that he called a king and a generation to repent and to turn from the weakness of their ways and in order to silence his witness for the Lord. He was executed between the courtyard and the altar, martyred because of his testimony of the things of God. And he says that the blood of Abel unto Zechariah will be required of this generation. And the reason why they were being condemned for it is because they were sealing up the sum of what their fathers had begun. Their fathers had killed, persecuted, and martyred the prophets that were speaking of Jesus as he would come. And these lawyers would be responsible for negotiating the deal that would put the God whom they were prophesying of to death upon the cross. And therefore, they were even more guilty than their fathers, but they were partaking in their father's sins. He says, Woe unto you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Jesus, of course, being the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you have hindered. So in the very name of what you're seeking to accomplish by being religious scribes, you are being the exact opposite of because you are removing the very key that makes sense of all that God has said and done throughout the ages of history. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. And so the place catches on fire now, and everyone's talking at once. And you can just imagine the scene that's ensuing there. Jesus and whatever apostles are with him at this point, and then the multitude of the Pharisees that are there, and there's just this back and forth that's going out, people screaming, yelling, spit flying in all of this. So what's the moral of the story in all of this? Here it is. Is be careful when you accept a dinner invitation. No. (laughs) No, but really, the moral of the story is given to us in the first three verses of chapter 12. And we'll go no further than verse 3. It says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together now an innumerable multitude of people, so the crowd is swelling as the tumult is rising, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hidden that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in the darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in the closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers were supposed to be the spiritual leaders and the spiritual influence and voice for God in the society that they were living in. They were called to provide a bridge between the people and God. They were called to provide teaching concerning the things of God so that the people would have clarity in the things of God. And they were called to be an example 
of what it means to live a life for God so that the people would have a frame of reference to look at and model their own lives after. But rather than becoming a bridge and bringing clarity and bringing an example, what they had become was a barrier and a burden and confusion and a bad example. And the reason why that happened was because of hypocrisy in their life. And what hypocrisy is, is to be something completely different on the outside than what you really are on the inside. And what they were on the outside appeared holy and righteous, giving off the essence that they could be trusted. But what they actually were on the inside was so corrupted and so far from God that should people follow their example, they are going to end up a million miles from what God intended them to know about himself and what he intended them to then be in experiencing the life that he then gives. And so what Jesus does here is he takes the condition that these Pharisees are in at this moment and he turns it into a warning that he gives, it says, first of all, to his disciples. That's you and me. That's those that were sitting there at the meal that were not with the Pharisees. And the warning that he gives them is beware. Beware of the tendency that every one of us has to put forth outwardly what you are not really inwardly. Now, in the New Testament context, every single one of us, you and I, are spiritual leaders. And every single one of us are called in this New Testament uh, covenant that we're in to be a bridge so that the lost world can be bridged in their relationship, the gap that's missing between God. It says that we are a kingdom of priests before God. And so we're called to be a bridge. We're also called to bring clarity and teaching and explanation to the things of God so that they can know who God is and that they can see where they're to go. And we're all called to be an example to those that need to know what it looks like to follow God within the world. That's what every one of us here is commissioned by Jesus and called to be within the world. But what Jesus is warning us is that it is possible for us to ruin that testimony and to undo all of the good that we're called to do if we're different on the inside than what we are portraying ourselves to be as children of God on the outside. Hypocrisy kills our witness, and it's important that we understand it. He compares it to leaven. He says, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. You know what's interesting about leaven? Is that you only need a little tiny bit, and it doesn't take long before the whole inside is corrupted by that leaven. And that's a tendency that we have. I've seen and I have been a new Christian. And there is a tendency within new Christians to just maybe take on just a little of this. I'll call it putting righteousness on credit. Is that I'm not really measured up yet to what I'm supposed to be or what I see in other Christians. I'm not there yet, whether it's in my prayer life or whether it's in my behavior or in my consecration to God. I'm not quite to that point where God's worked in my life yet, but I don't want anybody else to know that because everyone else who's been walking with the Lord as long as I have, they seem to hear God's voice. I don't hear God's voice. They seem to know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. They seem to be really bold. I don't feel really bold. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be those things even though I'm not really those things by the Spirit of God yet and my righteousness will soon catch up with what I'm portraying and putting forward. I'm going to catch up, but it doesn't really work that way. 
That's what hypocrisy does. And so instead of that gap getting closer, it always gets further apart. And pre-hypocrisy always becomes full-blown hypocrisy. And once hypocrisy comes in, you've got some problems. Because hypocrisy kills. The first problem with hypocrisy is that you become self-deceived. You begin to think that you actually are what everyone else sees. And you can become in that state so far from a true relationship with God that you're completely on the outside and you don't even know it. I think of the church in Laodicea. The church in Laodicea, they thought that they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. And yet Jesus' assessment of them is that they were poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked and that he was on the outside still trying to get in. That's what hypocrisy does within a life. It brings self-deception. Hypocrisy also renders you and I completely useless and unproductive for God because you can only reproduce what you are. And thirdly, hypocrisy, what it does is that uh, ultimately, whatever we are, whatever a man or woman is on the inside, ultimately that is what will one day be manifested on the outside. And so if I'm portraying myself to be holy and spiritual, but on the inside I'm really not, and I'm deceiving myself and deceiving those around me, it's only a matter of time before what's in here ultimately is expressed out here. And thus we look around today at the body of Christ, and what do we see? We see pastors and prophets and church leaders, and it seems that by the week and by the day they're being exposed as hypocrites. They're having affairs and they're laundering money and they're abusing people We look in and we say, that person had such an influence. They had such a voice. They were so well-respected. What happened? Hypocrisy is what happens. Is that there's things on the inside that are undealt with and they become a damaging factor for the body of Christ. A little sin goes unconfessed and then it becomes justified and then it's hidden under the surface. And then the spirit's conviction is suppressed and the heart becomes hardened. So what's the cure for hypocrisy as we close? Because it's something that every one of us must deal with in each one of our hearts. How are we cured from hypocrisy? Number one is this. And if you can hear this, I know it's late. Probably we're going a little over time at this point. I don't know because of the long announcements, but I'm wrapping it up. But if you can hear this, you could maybe be set free tonight in some way. It's this. Listen, understand. It's imperative that we embrace the process of God's sanctification within our lives. What I mean by that is this is that every one of us is born again by the Spirit of God and we become infants in Christ. And from that moment, the God, the Holy Spirit, from deep within our hearts, begins to form the person of Christ within us. And He begins to reveal what it means to walk with God. And He begins to grow up in us a personality that is distinct to ourself, but is an expression of Him within our lives. And that process takes time. And if we become impatient and we begin to think, well, I'm not what I should be at this point in my Christian process, so I'm going to fake it, then we're doing damage to that process that's going on inside of us. You never need to be for one day something that the Spirit of God has not made you yet. You might not be a bold evangelist that approaches people on the street and asks them about their faith in Christ. God the Holy Spirit might not have worked that into your life yet. You might not have victory over certain sins in your life yet because God the Holy Spirit hasn't addressed those things. You know it's coming. We all know the things in our life that He's going to be addressing and dealing with, but He hasn't brought you there yet. You don't have to try to be or pretend to be something that you're not. The Bible says, They that wait upon the Lord 
will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. And as much as that's a picture of any moment that we wait upon the Lord, it is absolutely a picture of the entirety of our walk with God. That as we wait upon him to do in our lives what he wants to do in our lives and to make us through our lives what he wants to make us through our lives, the changes that take place within us will be real and lasting. And there's a rest that comes with it. There's a strength that comes with it. And we'll find that our Christian walk is a joy and not a burden. To be a hypocrite, in part, means to be an actor. And I don't know of anything that's more difficult than to try to live and act. So difficult. Embrace the process. And the number two, and finally, 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 embrace the problem, is that when the Lord, by His Spirit, puts His finger upon something in your life, Fight the temptation to hide it and bring it to him in confession and ask him to remove it. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He that covers his sin will not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. 1 John 1 9, the New Testament counterpart to that verse says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just not only to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when God puts a conviction in us that something that we're doing isn't right or his light illumines something in us that's not right, he doesn't call us to hide it and pretend it's not there. He calls us to expose it before him and say, God, this is in my heart, but you died for it. And so as you're exposing it now, I pray that you'd forgive it, Lord, and that you'd break its power in my life or remove its presence in my life, that you'd pull it out from the roots and that you'd change my heart and make me more like you. And the process of God then is to answer that prayer and to move into our hearts and we become authentic in our expression of him and our experience of him. So we ask God to search and to expose us then we confess and forsake. And I love Psalm 86, 11. It says, teach me thy way, O God. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Would to God that he would give to us a heart that isn't compartmentalized into all these different segments. Well, God, this is mine. This is my world heart. This is my entertainment heart. This is my Christian heart, my Bible heart. We have that. That's there. But but Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Take every part of it, every chamber, every room, every page, every word, every part of the registry, every wire, every impulse, every unction, everything that goes through this life that you would have it, Lord, and that you would unite my heart to fear your name. And in that, not only are we free of hypocrisy and thus we become productive in an expression and a witness, but we enjoy God's presence within our lives and our Christian walk through this world. Father, we thank you tonight for this um, text. And we thank you, Lord, for what it teaches us. We thank you for your precious Holy Spirit, Lord, that's doing such a tremendous work in each one of us. And it's our great desire, Lord, that we would know Jesus. Lord, that we would walk with you according as you have planned and purposed for each one. That we would experience freedom in the true sense of freedom. For you said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And so it's our desire and our prayer tonight, Lord, that we would know you closer. That you would make us what we are not. And that we would be shaped like a potter shapes clay by your hand and you would have your way with our lives completely. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.